You're not gonna say it Somebody should Let's talk about two times Let's talk about bum one, yeah Asking the questions That nobody could Like where are the bone dogs and Are they in harmony? everybody welcome um today's show i ran a qua- across on today's show i ran across a goddamn thing that i can't even talk about with words um i ran across a wikipedia article called thought experiments and it had several examples of uh thought experiments so what i wanted to do was i this is a helpful snowman and I want to help people solve their problems. So I think we can solve these thought experiments. Now, I don't think they're meant to be solved. Um, but also a big thing we do on this show is misunderstand intent and do what we think is right, which ultimately doesn't help anyone. That's kind of our aesthetic. So without further ado, let's just find some of these. Okay, here's the doomsday argument. Um, let's see. The doomsday argument is a probable, probabilistic, probabilistic argument that claims to predict the number of future members of the human species given an estimate of the total number of humans born so far. It was first proposed by the astrophysicist Brendan Carter, Brandon Carter in 1983, from which it is sometimes called the Carter Catastrophe. The argument was subsequently championed, blah, blah, blah. Um, okay, if Leslie's figure is used, then 60 billion humans have been born so far, so it can be estimated that there is a 95% chance that the total number of humans will be less than 20 times 60 billion, which equals 1.2 trillion. Assuming the world population stabilizes at 10 billion and a life expectancy of 80 years, it can be estimated that the remaining 1... 1140 billion will be born in 9120 what the fuck what the fuck um okay just stop having babies boom we did it all right here's the beer question this this sounds like more my speed than all these numbers the beer question is a thought experiment in American politics that attempts to measure authenticity and likability in politicians by asking or polling voters about which politicians they would prefer to drink beer. What? The question has been discussed as far... I think that means to drink beer a beer with, right? The question has been discussed as far back as the 2000 United States election, as well as in the context of fictional political work such as the West Wing. The question has been criticized for the gender bias implicit in referencing a predominantly male drinking culture, and some have questioned the relevance of likability in choosing candidates for public office. Um, examples. George W. Bush, a Samuel Adams slash Roper Starch poll in the run-up to the 2000 United States election described sarcastically as, quote, very scientific by someone in her book, 
found that respondents would generally prefer to have a beer with George W. Bush, the Republican candidate, rather than with his Democratic opponent, Al Gore. Well, yeah. A Zogby Williams poll conducted in 2004 found that 57% of swing voters would rather have a drink with Bush than with his opponent in the 2000 election, John Kerry. All right, here's the thing about Bush. Uh, he's rich. His dad is in the CIA. And I think he got a DUI or two. So this is a man who knows how to party. All right. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily vote for, for the guy. But, uh, you know, if it was go have a beer with him or with Al Gore, I'm like, I don't know. Is Al Gore going to be complaining about whether or not they recycle the bottles at the bar? That's going to be tough. Oh, boy. 2016 presidential election. Significant attention was given to the beer question and how it related to the candidates. While Donald Trump, the eventual nominee and victor, was generally viewed favorably with regard to the beer question, other candidates were less thought to be less authentic in this respect, particularly Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. <laughs> in Slate, Seth Stevenson hypothesized that Trump scored the highest in that poll due to his unpredictability, writing, what other candidate calls his opponent a pussy on camera and then just owns it? Dude seems like he'd be fun after you got a couple of shots at him. I definitely agree. Uh, while Stevenson goes on to write that Republican candidate Ted Cruz said, if you want someone to grab a beer with, I might not be that guy. Um, yeah. Okay, here's the thing, everybody. The beer question is fun and relevant. But, you know, it's... Uh, let me put it like this. You're not going to bro down with the president. That's probably not going to happen. So there's no point in trying to pick somebody who to vote for somebody who you're going to bro down with. The beer question is useful if you're like, uh, my goal is to have beers with people. So who should I try to have beers with? And then it's like, all right, yeah, pick Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. But like, the very reasons that I would not want to have beers with Hillary Clinton are probably what make her a good president, right? Or like Al Gore, right? I just complained about him wanting to recycle. But, you know, I would want a president who's like, uh, yeah, we're going to try and do some recycling and shit. That seems reasonable. I'm like, yeah, I, I want that person as president. The person that I want to go have a beer with and party with is... Uh, drunken George W. on a ranch in Texas, right? But the person, that doesn't mean that I'm like, also, he should be president. <laughs> um, I don't know. That just seems dumb to me. It's like, it's a little like this too. Um, if I was picking a, okay, I'm going to tell a little tale. Um, when I was going to college and I met with my roommate and he said his mom was going to try and go get us in one of the nicer dorms. And he was like, um, he looked around the room and then he was like, I think we've got a good chance of getting in a good dorm. Cause my mom can be a real bitch. Um, and he was saying that in such a way where what he was trying to say is, um, when my mom puts her mind to something, she can be uh, 
little overly enthusiastic, let's say. <laughs> we did not get in, a, in any special dorm room, as far as I could tell. I think we were in one of the shittier ones. But uh, so it didn't work out. So maybe his mom was not as much of a bitch <laughs> as he said. Point being, though, when I want a mom, I don't necessarily want that to be her descriptor. But if my roommate's mom is going to be advocating for us to, uh, you know, be in a nicer dorm, I kind of, I'll, I'll take the lady who could be kind of a bitch. Just saying. All right. Should we go to the next one? Um, we're in the philosophy. Avicenna's floating man. All right, let's see. Let's see what we've got. What is the floating man? It's not not as threatening a name, not as good of a superhero name. Um, okay. While he was imprisoned in the castle of Fardajan near Hamadan, why are all the like every old philosopher was in prison? <laughs> are all the modern philosophers in prison? I don't know who modern philosophers are. It just seems like back in the day they were like, you're a philosopher, go to jail. And now it seems like some people think that everyone in jail is like got some kind of wisdom or something. Everybody's Morgan Freeman from the Green Mile or something. Or not, not the Green Mile. Shawshank. The other Stephen King story. Um, you know, and has some kind of wisdom, but I'm like, I don't know, man. Somebody in there must have just fucking knocked over a liquor store, right? Doesn't really know that much. It would be cool if they came up with philosophy, though. Why not? You're just in there all the time. They should just start a program. It's like, hey, prisoners, how about you write philosophy textbooks? And then they're like, all right, think about this. Uh, like Avicenna. Avicenna? Avicenna wrote his famous floating man, literally falling man. I thought, why? It's called fucking floating man, but it translates to falling man? Why won't you... A thought experiment to demonstrate human self-awareness in the substantiality and immateriality of the soul. Oh, yeah, totally. Avicenna believed his floating man thought experiment demonstrated that the soul is a substance. Um, okay, here's an, a translation of the argument. One of us, i.e. a human being, should be imagined as having been created in a single stroke created perfect and complete, but with his vision obscured so that he cannot perceive external entities, created falling through air or a void in such a matter that he is not, or manner that he is not struck by the firmness of the air in any way that compels him to feel it, and with his limbs separated so that they do not come in contact with or touch each other. Then contemplate the following. Can he be assured of the existence of himself? He does not have any doubt in that his self exists without thereby asserting that he has any exterior limbs, nor any internal organs, nor heart, nor brain, nor any one of the exterior things at all, but rather he can affirm the existence of himself without thereby asserting there that his self has any extension. What the fuck? Okay, let's, let's do the simplified version. The thought experiment told its readers to imagine themselves created all at once while suspended in the air, isolated from all sensations, which includes no sensory contact with even their own bodies. Avicenna argued that in this scenario, one would still have self-consciousness. 
because it is conceivable that a person suspended in air while cut off from sense experience would still be capable of determining his own existence, the thought experiment points to the conclusions that the soul is a perfection independent of the body with an immaterial substance. I see. Uh, the soul is perceived intellectually, which entails the soul's separateness from the body. Um, eh. Okay, so if I'm, I'm born and I'm just floating and I have no sensory information, but I can think. What would I even think about, though? Why would I be thinking, like, hey, I'm real, I exist? What would, like, spark the first thought, man? I am not nearly stoned enough for this. But it does seem like, I don't know, maybe nothing would happen. It would just be sort of like watching um, bad reality TV dating shows, and you get in the zone, and you're not really thinking about how you're alive or your body or whatever. You're just sort of this conduit for s something. So this is Peter's, uh, Peter's floating man. Floating through the uh, streaming services to find <laughs> entertainment. Um, and I think it proves that we don't have a soul. Because if we did, this would not soothe us. This would be a, a, a completely... Uh, you know, when you got in that zone where you just zoned out watching a reality dating show, it would cause tremendous anxiety if we had a soul. Because wouldn't your soul be like, oh my god, you're starving me. What is happening? Done. The beetle in a box. Um, okay. Wittgenstein invites readers to imagine a community in which the individuals each have a box containing a, quote, beetle. No one can look into anyone else's box. <laughs> and everyone, as he knows what a beetle is, only by looking at his beetle. If the, quote, beetle had a use in the language of these people, it could not be as the name of something, because it is entirely possible that each person had something completely different in their box, or even that the thing in the box constantly changed, or that each box was in fact empty. The contents of the box is irrelevant to whatever language game it is used on. By analogy, it does not matter that one cannot experience another's subjective sensations. Unless talk of such subjective experiences learned through public experience, the actual content is irrelevant. All we can discuss is what is available in our public language. Um, okay. So, I have a box, and it's got a beetle in it. And you have a box, and it's got a beetle in it. And we both know we've got our beetle boxes, but we can't ever see each other's beetle boxes, so how would we know that we're looking into the same thing? Whoa. <laughs> What are these guys doing? Like, these seem like really odd ways to live your life. Doesn't it? Like, okay, what if we had this, and then this was in it, and then that happened? You know what I mean? I don't know. I got, I think, uh, I, who cares? It's a fucking beetle. You know what I mean? Like, what difference does it make if that's, I think that's the biggest question in philosophy. 
So Beetle in the Box is uh, outstripped by Pete's philosophy of, well, who gives a shit? I mean, if you're trying to prove there's a soul or something, that seems important. But it's like, why do we call a beetle a beetle? Eh, fuck off. Boom. <laughs> because we do. Does it matter why? Or does it matter that we do? Alright, this is the big book. No statement of fact can ever be, or imply, a judgment of absolute value. Suppose one of you were an omniscient person and therefore knew all the movements of all the bodies in the world, dead or alive, and that you also knew all the states of mind of all human beings that ever lived, and suppose you wrote all you knew in a big book, then this book would contain the whole description of the world, and what I want to say is that this book would contain nothing that we would call an ethical judgment or anything that would logically imply such a judgment. What? Uh, no statement of fact can ever be a judgment of value. Okay. I mean, sure, I guess. I guess if you wrote the big book that way. But here's the thing. You just, you, you should have some voice in your writing, man. And when you're writing the big book and it's like, and then Coke was invented and Pepsi was invented and you're like, eh, Pepsi's really not as good. Also, if you drink a Pepsi warm like one time, it's ruined forever because it's disgusting. It's acidy. It's like, what if we had Coke, but it tasted more like it had metal in it? And then uh, that, that's what we get. Boom. Solved. Brain in a vat. Uh, let's see. I don't know if I can find this whole thing in a simple way. How, how far do I have to read to find out what this is? It's a scenario used in a variety of thought experiments intended to draw out certain features of human concept, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it outlines a scenario in which a mad scientist, machine, or other entity might remove a person's brain from the body, suspended in a vat of life-sustaining liquid, whatever that is, Coca-Cola, I guess, and connect its neurons by wires to a supercomputer, which provide it with electrical impulses identical to those the brain normally receives. According to such stories, the computer would then be simulating reality, including appropriate responses to the brain's own output, and the disembodied brain would continue to have perfectly normal conscious experiences, such as those of a person with an embodied brain, without these being related to objects or even in the real world. <coughs> hmm. Okay. What is the liquid? What's the liquid, everybody? Ha-ha! <laughs> and if it's in a liquid that sustains the brain and keeps it alive, then is the liquid not a body? Does that not count? What is a body? Boom. See that? I outsmarted your question with a question. God, I'm good. No wonder you listen to this. Buridan's ass. Now we're fucking talking. Oh, it's like a donkey kind of ass. I was like, who is this? Is Buridan a rapper? No. Buridan's ass is an illustration of a paradox in philosophy in... Philosophy? In the conception of free will. It refers to a hypothetical situation wherein an ass that is equally hungry and thirsty is placed precisely midway between a stack of hay and a pail of water. Since the paradox assumes the donkey will always go to whichever is closer, 
It dies of both hunger and thirst since it cannot make any rational decision between the hay and water. A common variant of the paradox substitutes two identical piles of hay for the hay and water. The ass, unable to choose between the two, dies of hunger. Oh. <laughs> I guess. Um, there was notably before this Aristotle, who put forward the example of a man equally hungry and thirsty, and Al-Ghazali, who used a man faced with the choice of, an, of equally good dates. Ugh. Uh, two equally good dates, I, I would starve, because I'd be like, well, two equally good dates means two shitty-tasting dates. So there you go. Um, I mean, so a donkey is dumb? Is that what we're trying to say? Okay, so Aristotle was like, a man being just as hungry as thirsty and placed in between food and drink must necessarily remain where he is and starve to death. I don't think that makes any sense. Does it? Why would you have to do that? Um, this is why we have the Pete's coin flip. You get a, uh, a coin flip, and then you make decisions. Boom. Uh, uh-oh, Chinese room. Oh, boy. I hope we're not getting in trouble with this. The Chinese room argument holds that a digital computer executing a program cannot have a mind, understanding, or consciousness, regardless of how intelligently or human-like the program may make the computer behave. Uh, what? So an artificial intelligence can't ever really be a mind, understanding, or consciousness. I think that might be kind of true because the reason I think that's true is like, <laughs> dude, it's like this. Um, humans like know things, right? When, when you're born or you just do things out of instinct. But a computer doesn't really do things out of instinct, does it? It does things that we told it to do, whether that's gathering information or using information. Um, it's not going to just do anything on its own. Like, you can take a computer, turn it on, and it's just going to sit there. Boom. It takes some kind of human initiation to start that thing, right? Boom. Look at this. I'm going to get a job at Google. Leave this shit behind. You guys wait. Kavka's Toxin Puzzle. Uh, Kafka's original version, this is, by the way, K-A-V-K-A, -A, not Franz Kafka, Kavka. Um, not that that's important. An eccentric billionaire, okay, this is great. This is what I'm fucking talking about. An eccentric billionaire places before you a vial of toxin that, if you drink it, it will make you painfully ill for a day, but will not threaten your life or have any lasting effects. The billionaire will pay you $1 million tomorrow morning if, at midnight tonight, you intend to drink the toxin tomorrow afternoon. He emphasizes that you need not drink the toxin to receive the money. In fact, the money will already be in your bank account hours before the time for drinking it arrives, if you succeed. All you have to do is intend at midnight to drink the stuff tomorrow afternoon. You are perfectly free to change your mind after receiving the money and not drink the toxin. 
So an interpretation is, can you intend to drink the toxin if you also intend to change your mind at a later time? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, okay. That's a tough one. Well, here's the, here's the problem with Kafka's toxin puzzle. I would drink the fucking poison even if I didn't have to. <laughs> like, if someone was like, um, you don't have to drink the poison to get the money. Or if someone was like, no, you definitely have to drink the poison to get the money, I would drink the poison. The toxin. And then never work again. One day of hellacious sickness to never work again, absolutely I would do that. No permanent effects? I would 100% do that. What are you, crazy? Of course I would do that. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would drink the, the thing. If someone was like, here's how you know, uh, here's how it falls apart. Someone's telling me about this puzzle, right? It's pre being presented to me. I'm in the eccentric billionaire's foyer or living room, sitting room, personal library with drinks globe. He opens the drinks globe and he's like, okay, I'm going to make a proposal. This toxin, if you drink it, will make you violently ill for one day. Uh, after, and then the next day, you'll feel exactly as you do now. There will be no lasting side effects, and I'm going to give you a billion dollars. Um, or, and before he could say or, I would have already drank the thing. So there you go. <laughs> I'd already, it's too late. It's too late. I would already have it. Boom. Done. Um, let's try Plank of Carn Carn Carniades. In the thought experiment, there are two shipwrecked sailors, A and B. They both see a plank that can only support one of them, and both of them swim towards it. Sailor A gets to the plank first. Sailor B, who is going to drown, pushes A off and away from the plank, and thus proximately causes A to drown. Sailor B gets on the plank and is later saved by a rescue team. The thought experiment poses the question of whether Sailor B can be tried for murder, because if B had to kill A in order to live, then it would arguably be in self-defense. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. Um, well, alright. I think it's a matter of who's the bigger asshole or jerk. Because there can only be one survivor. And who should that survivor be? You know, in the movie Titanic, we kind of dealt with this, right? And it's like, who should be the survivor? And the answer is obviously Kate Winslet. Because at the time of Titanic, I was not attracted to her. But then when she was the frumpy secretary to Steve Jobs in very 1980s glasses, I was like, now I get it. I don't know what's wrong with my brain, that that's how I that's how I roll but I did so she had to survive that's an answer <laughs> that's the answer right um okay let's see the case of the Spelunkian explorers um it presents a legal philosophy puzzle 
to the reader and five possible solutions in the form of judicial opinion. The case involves five explorers who are caved in following a landslide. They learn via intermittent radio contact that without food, they are likely to starve to death before they can be rescued. They decide to engage in cannibalism and select one of their number to be killed and eaten so the others may survive. They decide who should be killed by throwing a pair of dice. After the four survivors are rescued, they are charged and found guilty of the murder of the fifth explorer. If their appeal to the Supreme Court of Newgarth fails, they face a mandatory death sentence. Although the wording of the statute is clear and unambiguous, there is intense public pressure for the men to avoid facing the death penalty. Um, okay, that's easy. Uh, it's the fucking mining company's fault. Nobody's going to go with a mining company. So, you know, you're fine. You don't have to even worry about it. Um, everyone will agree that mining company is evil. And, uh, you know, eh. Hey, you know, is eating somebody bad? Sure. But what are you going to do? What else? What other options do you got? You know what I mean? You don't have, you don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of things. It's not like you wanted to eat the guy. Also, you couldn't like get some fucking yogurt down there or something like squeeze it through a crack. Nobody can figure out how to get an ounce of food down there. That seems a little outrageous. To be honest with you. I would be like, I'm going to sue the Dannon company for making their product too viscous. If it was more liquidy, it would have got right down here and I could have just drank yogurt out. Oh, God. And yeah, maybe I'd just eat the guy. You know, sometimes you got to eat the guy. Okay, this, this one is solved by... Uh, Pete's philosophy of have they already been punished enough? And I bring us back to the case of oh, fuck, what was that guy's name? Um, Plaxico Burris. Was that him? Plaxico Burris who shot himself in the thigh with an illegal handgun. Um, so, you know, he had to then go to court and stuff like that, right? But here's the thing. If Plaxico Burris showed up in my courtroom, I would be tempted to say, well, here's the deal. What you did was wrong and illegal, and we need to prevent you from having a handgun. But, uh, to be honest, no punishment I'm going to give you is the equivalent of, you know, if I was like, how about a punishment that fits the crime? We're going to shoot you in the thigh. Uh, everyone would be like, that's fucking insane, right? That's like way over the top. But that's kind of what happened to him, is he got shot in the leg. So I would say the punishment of having to live the rest of your life having eaten a dude is probably like more than I can really do to anybody else. Doesn't it seem like it? Doesn't that seem like it would be, you know, the worst thing? All right, Ship of Theseus. The ship of Theseus is a thought experiment about whether an object that has had all of its components replaced remains fundamentally the same object. All right. Uh, you know, follow-up questions are common. Okay, hold on. If the ship of Theseus were kept in a harbor and every part on the ship were replaced one at a time, 
would it then be a new ship? Is it not the same ship, then? If it is not the same ship, then at what point did it stop being the ship of Theseus? If it is the same ship, then could all the removed pieces be reassembled to form a ship, and would that be the ship of Theseus? (coughs) Hmm. That's a good question. I like this one. This is a good one. So if you took something apart, uh, took one by one, replaced it, you know, like, okay, the let's call this the Corolla of Pete, the 2000 Corolla of Pete, which over time, many, many parts have been replaced. And at some point, is it a new car or is it the same car? Uh, I think it's the same car. And here's why. The car, the the Corolla of Pete isn't really so much a collection of parts as it is an idea. Okay, it's a state of mind. I still feel the same about the car. I still have memories associated with the car. And it doesn't really matter if, for example, you know, I got new floor mats. I'd be like, well, this is fine. And then if the engine got replaced, I'd be like, it still feels the same. And if the body got replaced, I'd be like, it still feels the same. So really, the car is just a concept of feelings. How do you like them apples, motherfuckers? Solving shit left and right. Swamp Man. Uh, Suppose lightning strikes a dead tree in a swamp. Uh, I am standing nearby. My body is reduced to its elements, while entirely by coincidence and out of different molecules, the tree is turned into my physical replica. My replica, the Swamp Man, this sounds an awful lot like Swamp Thing. This is in 1987. Hold on. Alan Moore, Swamp Thing. Original publication date. Not 2019, you stupid fucks. All right, let's see. Swamp Thing. Alan Moore's books came out when? 1984. Um, This, like, exact thing happened in these Swamp Thing comics. Okay, let's go back. And it's even called Swamp Man. The fuck? The Swamp Man moves it. Okay, so it's your replica. Uh, the swamp man moves exactly as I did. According to its nature, it departs the swamp, encounters and seems to recognize my friends, and appears to return their greetings in English. It moves into my house and seems to write articles on radical interpretation. No one can tell the difference, but there is a difference. My replica can't recognize my friends. It can't recognize anything, since it never cognized anything in the first place. This is amazing. I didn't know cognizing was a thing. Uh, and I can't recognize. It can't know my friends' names, though of course it seems to. It can't remember my house. It can't mean what I do by the word house, for example, since the sound house it makes was not learned in a context that would give it the right meaning, or any meaning at all, indeed. I don't see how my replica can be said to mean anything by the sounds it makes, nor to have any thoughts. Okay, so this guy ripped off a fucking comic book or maybe a shitty movie, uh, and sold it as philosophy, that's a possible thing to do. This is like if Pete was like, okay, I came up with this philosophical question, 
let's say you are a eye patched wearing mercenary and you're tasked with rescuing the president from a prison island in Manhattan. This is the future, and Manhattan's been turned into a prison island. Um, a literal prison island, not the prison of liberal politics it is now, huh? Take that, lefties. <laughs> and your taxes, or whatever. Your tariffs on sodas. <laughs> um... And you you don't want to rescue the president because you think that, you know, he sucks. But then you're injected with something that you'll die in a short amount of time if you do not rescue him. Do you rescue the president and save your own life or do you not rescue the president and uh, endanger the lives of many others because the president is a warmongering dickhole? There you go. Um, so, yeah, I'm as good as that guy. All right, let's do this one. The utility monster. The sports utility monster. Um, a hypothetical being uh, receives much more utility from each unit of a resource they consume than anyone else. For instance, eating a cookie might bring only one unit of pleasure to an ordinary person, but could bring 100 units of pleasure to a utility monster. Or a cookie monster. Let's be honest, I think I see where this one came from too. If the utility monster can get so much pleasure from each unit of resources, it follows from utilitarianism that the distribution of resources should acknowledge this. If the utility monster existed, it would justify the mistreatment and perhaps annihilation of everyone else, according to the mandates of utilitarianism, because for the utility monster, the pleasure they would receive outweighs the suffering they may cause. Um, the thought experiment attempts to show that utilitarianism is not actually egalitarian, even though it appears to be at the first glance. Um, okay, but here's the thing. I consider myself a utilitarian person. And I think that mixing up happiness and utilitarianism is not, uh, correct. In other words, you know, it should be like, uh, utility, a utility monster can eat broccoli and get far more nutrition from it and therefore be more effective at XYZ than a human who eats that same broccoli. So shouldn't the broccoli go to the utility monster? Because when you talk about cookies and it's like, who? it's like you get more pleasure out of it than I do and it's like, eh, okay, but how much more pleasure? And like, at what point am I like, well, I don't fucking care if you... Anytime I've put a cookie in my mouth, I guarantee you there's someone who wanted it more than I did. But, uh, what, you know, I just got to make up this imaginary swamp man and think about that. This is one of those thought experiments that's just meant to, like, ruin your afternoon. You're like, you know, someone could use that more than you. <laughs> no, okay. I, I, get, I guess I get what this is saying, is that utilitarianism is not real. Because if it were, at some point, uh, it would mean basically giving up everything. Well, you know, I guess the ultimate utilitarian way of looking at the world would be like, if humans went away, everything would be better. Uh, we wouldn't be there to know about it, which takes us to a different thought experiment, I guess. Like, is it worth having an Earth that's a much better place if there are no humans there to know that that's happening? 
But here's the secret. You just, you get rid of most of the people. But then I still do it and I'll make this podcast and send it into space. I promise I'll do it. You don't have to worry about me. I'm trustworthy. I'm trustworthy and trust earning. So uh, here's the plan. Utility Monster is here. His name is Helpful Snowman. You need to donate to his Patreon because he could use the money more than you. And uh, you claim to be such a practical utilitarian person. So give me your fucking money or buy my books. Because I'll get more pleasure out of you buying my books than you will out of not buying my books. So there you go. Utility Monster. Problem solved. The answer is buy things from Helpful Snowman. Go on my Amazon store and just click and buy things that you don't even know what they are.